Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 as we continue our study of the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, our Lord Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Christ said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Bible is being sadly neglected by many churches all around the world. It's common in many churches today for entire sermon series to be developed, not from the study of the biblical text, but the most recent headline or the most popular recent film. One popular website that many pastors turn to for clever sermon ideas has actually promoted a sermon series called At The Movies. And in the sermon series, the pastor's supposed to show uh, clips from a recent popular film and then try to derive life principles from that film in order to attract an audience and stir the interest of the people. If you scan the internet for what's going on in many churches, you'll find that some today are going to be preaching the gospel according to Pixar. That's their title, that's not my title. Uh, another will be preaching Disney Summer Drive-In. Another sermon title, Avengers Endgame. A Baptist would we would think would never be guilty of such things because we have been known traditionally as a people of the book. That is, Scripture is always to be front and center, not only in the formation of our doctrine, but in how we live our lives and, and certainly how we conduct our worship. But I've actually heard even some of the most celebrated preachers in our own Southern Baptist Convention preached sermons that were greatly applauded in which not only was the sermon not based on a passage of Scripture, not even a single verse was quoted in the context of the message. And we claim that the Bible is the Word of God. And according to the most recent statistics, 60% of Americans still believe that. But if we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then why are we ashamed to preach it? Why are we negligent in studying it? And why do we fail to live by it? 
Today our study of the Sermon on the Mount has taken us to Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And this text reveals to us the Lord Jesus' own convictions about the Bible. The Lord Jesus shows us that he respects the Holy Scriptures, that he fulfilled the Holy Scriptures. He teaches the accuracy and inerrancy of the Holy Scriptures and he demands that his followers believe and obey the Holy Scriptures. And I'm convinced that Christ's view of the Bible should be the Christian's view of the Bible. We should believe all that the Lord Jesus taught about the sacred scrolls. And if we do, we're going to dust our Bibles off. We're going to study them daily. And we are going to dedicate ourselves moment by moment to live under the authority of this book. First of all, we see in this text that the Lord Jesus expressed his great respect for the Old Testament scriptures. Christ says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, why does Christ even have to say this? Who would ever have suspected Jesus of coming to abolish, to destroy, to nullify the Word of God in the Old Testament Scriptures? Well, I think we'll see the answer to that as we study verses 21 through 48 of this very same chapter, Matthew 5. Because there the Lord Jesus is going to quote an interpretation of the Old Testament by the rabbis six different times, and then he's going to turn around and challenge, contradict that common rabbinic interpretation of the Old Testament. And what appears to have happened is that when Jesus challenged how the rabbis of his day interpreted the Old Testament, they regarded it as if Jesus were attacking the Old Testament itself. They could not separate the authority of their personal interpretations of the Bible from the authority of the Bible itself. And Jesus will say six different times, you have heard that it was said to the ancients. When he says, you have heard that it was said to the ancients, he's reminding his disciples, most of you don't have your own personal scrolls of the Old Testament. What you know about the content of the Old Testament is only what the rabbis have taught you every Sabbath when you've joined together in the synagogue. But then when he says, but I say to you, he's not contradicting the Old Testament. He's simply telling his disciples that they've been misinformed by the rabbis because they have not interpreted scripture accurately. Now, some people think that in the antitheses, these six challenges in verses 21 through 48, that Jesus is contradicting the Old Testament. He is not. He never does. If Jesus were contradicting the Old Testament, then you would expect in verse 21 to read, You have heard that it was said to those of old, Thou shalt not murder, but I say to you, go out and murder. Obviously, Christ doesn't say that. 
If Jesus were contradicting the Old Testament, you would expect in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, go out and commit adultery. But obviously, Christ doesn't say that. He never once contradicts the Old Testament in these passages. He is instead correcting the errant interpretation of these passages by the rabbis. But unfortunately, these Jewish teachers were not able to separate the authority of their errant interpretations of Scripture from the authority of the inerrant Word of God. That still happens today. Several years ago, I was lecturing at a college on divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And when I came to the topic of divine election, uh, there was a student who strongly objected. And she said, and what are you going to do then with this biblical passage that says, all men are created equal? Because that shows that God is obligated to treat every single person exactly the same way. Well, it was an awkward moment in that public Q&A because I didn't want to embarrass the lady, but she needed to know that that phrase actually was not a biblical quotation. It was from the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. And even that she was interpreting incorrectly because the founders of our nation didn't believe that every person has to be treated the exact same way by God. God is sovereign and he can do as he pleases. Soon after that, I was in a debate with a pastor about the very nature of the gospel. He held a view that I would call easy believism. All you got to do is say with your mouth that you believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior and your salvation is guaranteed. Even if you live a lifestyle of heinous sin for decade after decade after that and die in that terribly sinful lifestyle. I was saying, no, that's not the gospel. The, the gospel teaches that God not only forgives the sinner, God also transforms the sinner. He gives him new birth and he changes him from the inside out so that his life will be different. And if you're not born again, the Lord Jesus said, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And in anger, he insisted, well, if you believe that nonsense, you're going to have to rip half the pages out of your Bible. And what he was saying is, if you disagree with me, you're disagreeing with God. Because he was unable to distinguish his errant interpretation of the Scripture from the authority of the inerrant Word of God. Same thing is happening in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Since he contradicts the interpretation of the Old Testament by the rabbis, they believe that he is abolishing, destroying the Old Testament itself. Jesus never contradicts the Old Testament. In fact, he draws most of his teaching from the Old Testament. 
And he recognizes that the Old Testament is fully inspired by God, fully accurate, fully reliable. For example, in Matthew 15, 4, the Lord Jesus will quote the fifth commandment of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and he will introduce it with the words, not Moses said, but God said. In other words, he recognizes that the Old Testament is the very Word of God. Jesus' insistence that he did not come to destroy, abolish, or jettison the Old Testament stands in sharp tension with what you hear from some pulpits today. In a sermon preached on April the 29th of 2018, Andy Stanley, who is the senior pastor of North Point Community Church in Alpharetta, Georgia, taught that Christians need to, quote, unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. He went on to explain what he meant by that. Here are just a few key direct quotations. He says, the Old Testament should not be the go-to source regarding any behavior in the church. In other words, it doesn't matter that the Ten Commandments say, you shall not murder or you shall not commit adultery. If you want to understand morality, you can't turn to the Old Testament to establish it. You've got to look somewhere else. He said the first century church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. He said Peter, James, and Paul chose to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. And then he said the Bible did not create Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus created and launched Christianity. And his implication is you can get rid of the majority of the Bible, the Old Testament, because, quote, your whole house of Old Testament cards can come tumbling down. Now, if you understand what the Lord Jesus teaches about the abiding authority of the Old Testament, I hope you'll recognize that those statements are nothing short of heresy. They are irreconcilable with Jesus' own teaching about the Old Testament. Andy Stanley may have come to destroy the law and the prophets, but Jesus Christ insists that he did not. And his task in the Sermon on the Mount is largely to show the correct interpretation of the law and the prophets, not jettison the law and the prophets. But then the Lord Jesus also shows us that he fulfilled the scriptures. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. He said, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, what does fulfill mean here? Some people think it simply means obey. And that's theologically true. Jesus certainly did obey the Old Testament completely and perfectly. But the word fulfill doesn't typically mean Obey. There's only one verse in the entire uh, Gospel of Matthew where fulfill has that sense, and it's in the context of the statement that Jesus 
fulfills all righteousness through his baptism. That ordinarily fulfill does not mean obey. It means something else. Some people have said that the word fulfill means that Jesus came to uncover the true meaning of the Old Testament, which even the Old Testament prophets themselves did not understand. Well, the Lord Jesus is always an accurate interpreter of the Old Testament. That much is theologically true, although I would argue the Old Testament prophets knew good and well what they were writing and what it meant. But on the other hand, the word fulfill never means in all of the Gospel of Matthew to simply explain and show the true meaning of. Ordinarily, the word fulfill means to accomplish what the Old Testament prophets predicted. Of the 16, excuse me, 12 occurrences of the verb fulfill, plerao, in the Greek text of the Gospel of Matthew, 75% of them, three-fourths, relate to the fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew 1.22, Matthew 2.15, Matthew 217, Matthew 2.17, 2.23, 4.14, 8.17, 12.17, 13.35, 21.4, 26.54, and 56.27.9. Of the 16 uses of the verb, 12 clearly refer to the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus doing and being all that the Old Testament prophets predicted. One of the common constructions that you encounter in the Gospel of Matthew is a description of some event in Jesus' life. And then Matthew says, now all this happened in order to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying. And then he quotes an Old Testament prophecy. To fulfill means to do what the Old Testament prophets foretold. And that's clearly what Jesus has in mind here because he goes on to say, not until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is what? Accomplished. So fulfill means to accomplish what the Old Testament prophets predicted. Both the prophet Moses and the first five books of the Old Testament and then the prophets responsible for the rest of the Old Testament canon as well. Now, what are some of the prophecies that the Lord Jesus fulfilled that Matthew mentions? Well, Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 7:14 that foretold that the Messiah would be conceived miraculously by a virgin. It's fulfilled in Matthew 1.22. Jesus fulfills Micah 5.2, which foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And this is fulfilled in Matthew 2.1. Jesus fulfills Hosea 11.1, which says that the Messiah will be called out of Egypt. It's fulfilled in Matthew 2.13-15. Jesus fulfilled Jeremiah 31, 18, which foretold the slaughter of the innocents. The prophecy is fulfilled in Matthew 2, 16. Isaiah 40, verse 3, 
foretold that the Messiah's coming would be preceded by a prophet in the wilderness who would prepare for the coming of the Lord. This is fulfilled in Matthew 3, 1. Isaiah 9, 1 through 2 told that among other things, the Messiah would come to Galilee of the Gentiles. And this is fulfilled in Matthew 4, 13. Isaiah 53, 4 said that the Messiah, Isaiah's servant of the Lord, would come and he would take our sicknesses and carry our infirmities like a sacrificial lamb. This is fulfilled in Matthew 8, 14 through 16. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 says that the Messiah would not be loud or pretentious. And this is fulfilled in Matthew 12, 15 through 21. Psalm 78, 2 says that the Messiah would teach in parables. And this is fulfilled in Matthew 13, 34. And the Old Testament taught that the Messiah would be nailed to a cross die as the sacrifice for the sin of God's people and then rise from the dead. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and these prophecies are fulfilled in Matthew 27. And the reality is, we've just scratched the surface. Of all of the scriptures that are quoted or alluded to in the Gospel of Matthew, which Jesus explicitly and precisely fulfills. Well, Jesus said, no, I didn't come to contradict the Old Testament because the Old Testament testified about the Lord Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these testify about me. Jesus would not wish to undermine the authority of the Old Testament since its primary purpose was to describe in advance all that Jesus would be and would do. But Jesus also affirmed the inspiration and infallibility of the Old Testament scriptures. Christ says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law, and here the law refers not just to its legal sections, it's being used as an umbrella term for the entire Old Testament, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, it's first of all important to note that Christ uses here a construction in the Greek text known as emphatic negation. It's a very powerful way of saying something absolutely will not, no, never, ever happen. You take the double negative, ou, may, and you link it together with the subjunctive mood, and that's exactly the construction that is used here. Jesus is ruling out the very possibility of an event. Christ is saying, ain't no way, no how that a iota or a dot is going to pass from the law until all of it is fulfilled. Now let's talk about that iota and that dot for just a moment. The iota is the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. 
And because it is so minuscule in size, we still use the word iota to speak of something that's tiny and insignificant, right? A person might say, I don't have one iota of respect for someone who tells lies. Or a person might say, she didn't have an iota of fear when she jumped out of that airplane with the parachute strapped on her back. Or he doesn't have an iota of talent on the golf course. <laughs> iota means something small, even something relatively insignificant. And the word iota, the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet, was used in that kind of way in Jesus' day too. Now in this text, Jesus is originally teaching, of course, in Hebrew or Aramaic. So the iota, smallest letter of the Greek alphabet, is a translation, a transliteration of the yod, which is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You'll see on that top mysterious looking line uh, on the PowerPoint slide there, Genesis 1.1. Bereshith bara Elohim, eth hashemayim ve'eth ha'eretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you see that little stroke that looks kind of like the English apostrophe? There's one here. There's one here. And there's one here. That is the yod. Tiniest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And when Jesus makes this statement, what he's saying is even that tiny, itsy-bitsy, seemingly insignificant letter is inspired, inerrant, and scripture is accurate and reliable down even to that tiny detail. And then that's not enough to show us that scripture is inspired and reliable down to the tiniest detail, Christ strengthens the statement even more. And he says, it's not just an iota, not even a dot. The word translated as dot here is the Greek word keraya, which speaks of a tiny little stroke of the pen, a little hook, a serif that distinguishes one letter of the Hebrew alphabet from a similar looking letter. Well, let me give you an example in English. In English, if we take the letter F and add a stroke there closing off that gap, we transform the F into a P. Then if we add another little hook at the bottom of the P, we transform the P into an R. And if we add another little hook at the bottom of the R, we transform the R into a B. Now, does that make much difference in the meaning of a word? Let's start with the word fun. Fun would become pun, would become run, would become bun. Any significant difference in the meaning of those four words? Absolutely. And if you replace one with another in any English sentence, you're going to create a lot of confusion. Well, the Hebrew language functions in the very same way. 
remember that Hebrew reads from right to left, not like English, from left to right. So look at those Hebrew characters and go over to the right-hand side, and you see something that looks like a reversed C. That's the Hebrew cough. But if I add a serif down at the bottom right-hand corner of the cough, it becomes a bait. I've now changed the K sound to a B sound. Or I can take the next letter, which is the resh. It makes the sound of an R. If I add a serif, it changes the resh to a dalit, an R sound to a D sound. Or I can take the next letter, the hey. If I add the serif, it becomes a kate. In other words, the H sound has become the h sound in Hebrew. Making these subtle little changes can make an enormous difference in the meaning of a Hebrew expression. Take, for example, Exodus 34, 14, which says, You shall not worship another, a hair, God. If I just add a serif to one letter, changing the resh to a dalit, the R sound to a D sound, I've completely and radically changed the meaning of the command, and it no longer would say, do not worship another God, a prohibition of idolatry and false religion. It would now say, do not worship one God. Would that create a problem? Absolutely, because the heart of Old Testament religion was that Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And only that one God, Yahweh, Jehovah, is worthy of our worship and our service. To worship any other is not just sacrilege, but blasphemy. And here's my point. Since the tiniest little details of Scripture impact its meaning, it's important to know that it's not just the general ideas of the Bible that are inspired. And it's not even just the individual words of the Bible that are inspired by God. It is even the tiniest little details of the Scriptures as originally given by God. That's why it's important for pastors to study the biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek. That's why it's important for us to strive for the most accurate English translations in the worship of our churches that can possibly be created. That's why we should strive for accurate Bible translation for those who speak all the many languages of the world. And what Jesus is telling us here is that the Old Testament is of enduring significance and not the tiniest detail needs to be deleted by God for it to be fulfilled in history. Every single detail of what God foretold through the prophets will come to pass. And it will be fulfilled without any tampering and without any need for revision. Then... The Lord Jesus teaches us that his disciples should teach and obey the law 
and the prophets. Christ says, because of this detailed divine inspiration of the scriptures, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, what were the kind of people who were relaxing even the least of the commandments? Well, Christ is going to mention them by name in verse 20. The scribes and Pharisees. Now, this would have struck the folks as odd. Because the rabbis were actually committed to what they called building a hedge around the Torah. And what they meant was that they were going to extend the teaching of the Old Testament so that God's people wouldn't even get close to breaking the commands. So if God drew the line here, the Pharisees and scribes would draw the line way over here so that people wouldn't even get close to breaking the commandment. An example of this kind of thing was the rabbi's interpretation of Sabbath law. Commandment says, don't work on the Sabbath day. But the rabbis gave a very detailed interpretation of work in which they divided work into 39 separate categories, and every one of those categories had many subcategories. One of the things they said you were not to do on the Sabbath day was carry something on the Sabbath to bear a burden. And then they gave examples. They said, since you're not supposed to bear a burden on the Sabbath day, you can't wear your false teeth on the Sabbath. Since you're not supposed to bear a burden on the Sabbath day, if your house is burning to the ground, you can't rush in and gather up your possessions and then carry them out. But since it's not imprudent to wear clothes on the Sabbath day. God does not approve of public nudity. It's okay to rush into your home, put on as many of your clothes at once as you can possibly wear, and then come outside in order to rescue those garments. Now, what's interesting is that the rabbis focus their building a hedge around the Torah on what they considered to be the greatest commandments of the Old Testament. And they clearly defined what the greatest commandments of the Old Testament were. First was the command to be circumcised. They said that the command to be circumcised was so important, so great, that it outweighed all other commandments put together. And then they said the second greatest commandment was the Sabbath commandment which was equal in authority to all the other commandments put together. So get circumcised outweighs the authority of all other commandments. Observe the Sabbath was equal in authority to all the other commandments. So they focused on these ritual areas of the law and they built that hedge around the Torah so that people wouldn't even get close to breaking these commandments. But on the other hand, they relaxed the very important moral standards of the Old Testament. 
An example would be the prohibitions against divorce in the Old Testament. The rabbis interpreted Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, so lenient and permissively that they justified divorce literally for any reason. If your wife burned your supper, grounds for divorce. Uh, if as she aged, she became less attractive to you, or even if you simply found another woman you thought was prettier, grounds for divorce. If your in-laws move into town to be close to their daughter, grounds for divorce. I could keep on going for a long, long time. They justified divorce for any reason whatsoever. Same thing with the commandment against adultery. I won't be vivid here, but if I were to cite for you what the rabbis permitted, which is clearly prohibited by the law against adultery, you would be stunned. What are they doing? Again and again, they are relaxing the moral commandments of the Old Testament because they think these are the least of them. And Jesus is going to counter their teaching on two fronts. Number one, he's going to say, what you think is of least of importance is actually of greatest importance. Most important commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Christ elevated to the greatest importance what they diminished and minimized. Christ says, those who relax what they wrongly consider to be the least of the commandments are going to be least in the kingdom. What God wants his disciples to do is what he describes in the next clause. He wants us to do even the least of the commandments and to teach even the least of the commandments. And when we do, we will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And that phrase, will be called, doesn't mean we'll be called that by other people. It's a divine passive referring to the judgment that God will render on judgment day. Because of our commitment to all of the scriptures, and especially its moral teachings, which the scribes and Pharisees diminished, we can expect great heavenly reward. And that's why Christ goes on to say, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus made this statement, his disciples would have gasped because everyone regarded, even those who weren't Pharisees and who weren't scribes, everyone regarded these people as the holiest, most devout, most righteous people of the day. And when Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed theirs, the disciples' jaws would have dropped and they would have thought, how could that be possible? Well, it, it's possible, number one, because the least of these commandments refers to the moral teaching of the Old Testament as interpreted by the Lord Jesus and carefully explained in the Sermon on the Mount. 
That righteous life that Jesus describes as the natural, normal life of his disciples greatly surpasses, vastly exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And there are several reasons for that. Number one, the scribes and Pharisees tended to focus on external matters, not internal matters. Remember, they are concerned because Jesus' disciples don't ritually wash their hands several times in a meal like had become the tradition of the day. And the Lord Jesus says, hold on. It's not what goes into a man. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. And he lists horrible, heinous sins, and he said, all of these things issue from a corrupt and depraved human heart. What's he saying? He's saying, it's the inside that matters most. Not if you've recently touched a corpse. Not if you've come into a contact with some item that a leper recently touched and so forth. He said, those principles of separation from ritual impurity aren't what matters most. What matters most is the condition of your heart, your character, your behavior, and your speech that Jesus requires of his disciples here in the Sermon on the Mount. Another reason that Jesus' disciples' righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees is because they were obsessed with simply keeping divine commandments, fulfilling the letter of the law. But Jesus calls his disciples to a righteousness that not only involves keeping divine commandments, but involves manifesting divine character. One of the guiding moral principles of the Sermon on the Mount is what the church fathers referred to as the imitatio Dei, the imitation of God. Since Scripture said, be holy as the Lord your God is holy, we are to seek to exemplify the character of the holy God in all that we say and do. We're going to see this at the end of chapter 5. Jesus is going to challenge the scribes and Pharisees who said, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. And he's going to say, oh no, you can't hate your enemy. And then what's the main argument that he gives? He says, look at what the heavenly father does. He causes his rain to fall and water the crops and his sun to shine and bless the crops, not just of the good, but even of the evil. Not just of the righteous, but even of the unrighteous. What's Christ's argument? His argument is, God the Father shows love even to his enemies. And then he says, this is what the sons and daughters of God must do as well. Because you're sons and daughters of God by virtue of spiritual birth, since you have partaken of his uh, DNA, so to speak, his moral character by being born again. You should relate to other people like God relates to them, and that means showing kindness and love even to your enemies. Now, there are a lot of moral issues that the Old Testament does not explicitly address. 
But if we reflect for a moment on the character of God and not just the commandments of God in those cases, the path forward will become abundantly clear. And when our moral compass points toward the holiness of God and not just commandment keeping, we will possess a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Why is it that our righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees? Well, don't forget the beatitude. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will be filled is another divine passive, a reverent expression to the activity of God. And what Christ was teaching is that as his disciples crave righteousness, God will gift it to them. The scribes and Pharisees thought that righteousness was something that they could accomplish by their sheer moral will, but they could not. True righteous living is possible only through the transforming power of the gospel, only through the Spirit of God who indwells the believer's heart compelling him from within to do what is right, holy, and good. Since 2011, the American Bible Society has been collecting data on American beliefs and attitudes and practices related to the Bible. In their 2021 report, they noted that over half of American adults, 55%, are biblical inerrantists who affirm the quote, the Bible is the inspired word of God and contains no errors. They found that 71% of Americans believe that the Bible is at least generally inspired by God, although it may contain an error here or there. They found that over half 54% recognize that the Bible contains everything a person needs to know in order to lead a meaningful life. The same percentage said that our country would be much worse off without its biblical heritage. When you read those statistics, you would think, well, over half of the American people are going to be committed to studying the Bible and reading the Bible daily. Shocker, the same survey found only 11% of adult Americans are committed to reading the Bible or listening to their Bible on whatever device they prefer on a daily basis. What an indictment. Kind of makes you wonder if we really believe what we claim to believe about the Bible, doesn't it? Skeptics love to point this inconsistency out when... First-year students walk into the New Testament introduction class at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Professor Barterm and loves to ask them, how many of you believe that the New Testament is the inspired and inerrant word of God? And hands shoot up. And then he'll ask the question, and how many of you have ever read the entire New Testament all the way through? And almost no one has and then he scoffs and says, isn't that interesting? 
I don't believe this book, he says, but I study it every single day. And yet you claim to believe this book and you seldom crack it. Isn't that interesting? No, that's not interesting. That's indicting. That's tragic. If we believe what Jesus taught about the Scripture, then we will love this book. We will adore it so much that we will study it daily and we will pattern our lives after it. And one of the reasons you should do that is because of what Christ said in John 5:39, search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life and these are they that testify about me. Most important things we learn from this book are the gospel story, the truth about the Lord Jesus who came into this world and lived the perfect life that we can't live and then went to the cross to be punished for our sins in our place so that we can escape the wrath of God that we justly deserve. And after three days in the grave, the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, conquering sin and Satan, sending the Holy Spirit to indwell his people and transform them from the inside out. And because of what Christ did in his death and resurrection, we sinners can be forgiven. Our sins can be erased from the sight of the heavenly judge so that when we appear before him on judgment day and he pronounces his verdict, he will slam the gavel and declare us not guilty. Oh, we're guilty. But we will be justified. We will be pronounced not guilty, not because of who we are and what we have done, but because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Amen. Christ bore the penalty for our sins so that we could be rewarded for his righteousness. But Christ won't just forgive those who believe. He transforms those who believe. He grants his spirit. He gives us a new heart so that we are compelled from within day after day to live according to the teachings of the Bible. The Heavenly Father imparts to us His own holy character so that we become capable of that surpassing righteousness that exceeds even what the scribes and Pharisees were capable of. Christ can forgive your sins. Christ can change your life. And that is a free gift that you receive through simple faith. The scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. How do we know that that promise is true? It's because it was inscripturated for us in this book that the Lord Jesus said is accurate, reliable, and inspired down to the tiniest detail. We can trust this book because God is worthy of our trust, and this book is His Word.
So with the authority of God's own voice, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Saved from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin, and one day in resurrection and glory, saved from the very presence of sin. If you would like that free gift of salvation in a few moments, I want you to pray with me. What's known as the sinner's prayer. Nothing magical about the wording of this prayer, but if it is the confession of your heart, if it is what you want to say to the Lord Jesus today, what I pray will become your prayer and God will hear it and heed it. Would you join me? Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I deserve your punishment. I've tried to please you through my good works, and all that effort's only proven that I am completely incapable of ever doing that. I recognize now that I don't have to. I don't have to try to make up for my sin as if I ever could. You have done everything that is necessary for me to be forgiven and my life to be changed. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me, that you bore my sins in my place so that I can be pronounced not guilty by the heavenly judge. I ask you now to save me, to forgive me. I ask you to grant me your Holy Spirit to change my life from the inside out. Enable me to break free from the old sinful habits that have enslaved me and live my life for your glory and for the good of others. Lord Jesus, thank you for saving me according to your promise. I confess you now as my Savior and as my God and as my King. If that's your commitment, in a few minutes when we sing together, I'm going to invite you to come forward and speak to one of our church leaders. We will be happy to tell you what the next steps are in your Christian life. And you can leave this place today with assurance that your sins are forgiven and you will spend eternity with God, knowing blessings that defy imagination. Please don't leave this place today without taking that important step. Lord Jesus, we commit this invitation to you and we pray that your spirit would move sinners to repentance and faith as you once moved each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.